Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Today's podcast is sponsored by Bambi. HR managers ain't cheap. Salaries average $70,000 a year. So go to Bambi.com slash gold to schedule your free HR audit. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Avast. Avast's new all-in-one solution, Avast One, helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of features. You can learn more about Avast One at Avast.com. On Friday... President Biden made good on a campaign pledge that he never should have made in the first place. And in fact, when he made the pledge, I criticized him then and I'm criticizing him again today by naming Katanzi Brown Jackson as his nominee to fill the vacant seat on the Supreme Court left by the retiring Stephen Breyer. Now, the reason that I say that he never should have made this promise is because Biden promised voters that his first Supreme Court appointment would be a black woman. Now, you don't want to go out and say that because the minute you say that, you are admitting in advance that you are going to be discriminating based on gender and based on ethnicity. Now, if the whole idea is to have a colorblind society where people are judged by the content of their character, right? They're going to be judged by their qualifications regardless of their gender, of their race, or their sexual orientation. If you come out and say, when I have to nominate a Supreme Court justice, basically, when I have to hire somebody to fill a vacancy on the Supreme Court, I'm going to hire a black woman. Well, that means you're not going to hire any men, even black men, and you're not going to hire any white women. So you're going to discriminate against all men and white women when you're looking to hire the next Supreme Court justice. Well, that's supposed to be illegal. You're not supposed to be able to do that. I'm sure if Biden said, if I'm elected, I promise to nominate a white man, everybody would have screamed, you can't do that. 
You can't just exclude all the black men or all the women. You can't just narrow your search and say, the only person I'm going to hire for this job is going to be a white man. Of course. And if you can't limit your search to white men, then you also can't limit your search to black women for the same reason. Now, yes, there's never been a black woman to be on the Supreme Court, but that doesn't mean the next vacancy should be filled by a black woman if a white woman or a black man or a white man happens to be better qualified for the job. And in fact, if I were a black woman, I would not want the job if I didn't beat out all the other white women and white men or black men for the same job. I wouldn't want to be given a job simply because I was the right gender or the right race. Now, maybe Biden could have just kept quiet about what he was going to do and just pretended that when he nominated Ketonzi Brown Jackson, that it just so happens that the most qualified person for the job was a black woman. It would have been a lot more significant because when you hear about this Supreme Court nomination, the first thing you hear is that this is the first time we're going to have a black woman on the Supreme Court. Well, it would be a lot more significant if the first black woman to make it to the Supreme Court got there on merit, not because she was black and a woman, but because she was better qualified than all the men or all the whites that Biden could have picked. So he could have done that. He could have just thought to himself, said, you know what? I'm going to only consider black women, but at least I'm not going to tell people that. At least I'm going to pretend that I went for the most qualified candidate. And what do you know? The most qualified candidate just happened to be a black woman. That might have been less honest, but I think it would have been better for the country, better for black women if he would have just put on that pretense. But given her lack of qualifications, lack of experience, I don't think the nation would have bought it. Because if you look at her background, she's only been a federal judge for eight years or so, or nine years, or not quite. But almost all of that time, eight years, she was a district court judge. She's only been an appellate court judge for seven months. So she has seven months of experience in reviewing and deciding on cases that were already heard by a lower court. Because basically that's what the Supreme Court does. They look at cases that have already been heard. There's already been a decision first at the district level and then at the appellate level. And now the Supreme Court is reviewing the appellate court. But Ketanzi Brown-Jackson only has seven months of experience reviewing decisions of lower courts. Clearly, there's probably other appeals court judges who have been on the Court of Appeals for more than just seven months. So there are probably a lot more candidates that may have been better qualified to fill this vacancy had Biden not promised to only look at black women and to exclude all other candidates who might actually have more experience and be better qualified for the job. Yes, she's probably a smart woman, you know, lawyer. She went to Harvard undergrad and she went to Harvard Law. But I'll tell you one thing, and this is unfortunate and it's nothing against Ketanji Brown Jackson. This is the problem with affirmative action. And this is how it backfires and creates a stigma. Because when I see a black woman who went to Harvard, 
the first thing in my mind is, well, I wonder if she would have gotten accepted to Harvard if she were white. Because the bar to get into Harvard as a black woman is significantly lower than the bar to get in as a white man. Because the LSATs that they require, the GPA that they require, undergrad, is far lower because schools like Harvard are going out of their way to find minorities, particularly African Americans, to enter their class, both at the undergraduate level and at the law school level. Now, it's certainly possible that Ms. Jackson had LSATs high enough and a GPA high enough that she didn't need the extra help, that she would have gotten in even had they not lowered the bar for African-Americans. But who knows that? You don't know. I mean, they don't tell you what her LSAT was. They don't tell you what her GPA was or anything like that. We don't have any of this information. All we know is that she graduated from Harvard, but we know that Harvard makes it a lot easier for minorities to be accepted. And that's unfortunate because that means the minorities that would have got in anyway without the special treatment, everybody is going to judge them from that skewed perspective. So just because she went to Harvard, that accomplishment gets tainted by the fact that everybody knows how far they lower the bar with respect to admitting minority applicants. But just going to a prestigious university shouldn't be enough to qualify you for the Supreme Court because there's a lot of people who have graduated from Harvard or Yale or Princeton or these good schools, but who also have a lot more experience at the appellate court level than someone who has only been there for seven months. The ironic thing, though, is whenever a Democrat is looking to fill a vacancy on the bench, whether it's the Supreme Court or the appellate court, they don't really want somebody who's qualified, who understands the Constitution, because the Democrats, they hate the Constitution. The Constitution is basically against everything they believe in because it stops them from doing everything they want to do. So what the Democrats are really looking for in a Supreme Court nominee is somebody who will completely ignore the Constitution and just make rulings based on what she thinks is equitable or right based on her political leanings, not enforcing the language of the Constitution as clearly written. In fact, that's obvious when you listen to what Camilla Harris had to say about this nomination. This is a quote. Quote, the idea that there would be a black woman on the court is about ensuring that this court makes decisions in a way that reflect the experiences of all Americans. Reflect the experiences of all Americans. Meaning that this is great because now that we have a black woman on the Supreme Court, when she reviews cases and decides on the constitutionality of things, that she's going to bring her own perspective and experience to those decisions. Well, your perspective and experience has nothing to do with those decisions. If you're on the Supreme Court to enforce the Constitution, it doesn't matter about your background. It doesn't matter about the personal obstacles you had to overcome or what you experienced when you were growing up. All of that is irrelevant to what the Constitution actually says. So it should not be a factor. Whether you're a black woman or a white man, whether you grew up with a silver spoon in your mouth or in a ghetto somewhere, 
None of that matters. The Constitution is the same for everybody, and you're supposed to check your personal preferences and biases at the door, right, when you enter that chamber to deliberate on the Supreme Court. But when you have someone like Camilla Harris saying that she specifically wants the Supreme Court justices to consider their experiences that they've had personally and use their own experiences when it comes to rulings, what she's really saying is she wants the Supreme Court justices to ignore the Constitution and focus more on the individual's whose cases she's ruling on and take into consideration their experiences when coming up with a ruling. In other words, let's have a fair ruling, a ruling that reflects what you believe should happen, not what the Constitution actually requires to happen because that might contradict with your own political agenda. What we really want are Supreme Court justices that don't have a political agenda, or if they do, they don't let it interfere with their judicial responsibilities to enforce the Constitution. In fact, if you think about the quote from John Adams, that we're a government of laws and not a government of men, or in this case, women, we don't want men and women on the Supreme Court making the law. We have a law, and it's the job of every justice of the Supreme Court to enforce the law. And we're talking about enforcing the laws against the government. It's not about the people. It's about the government. But of course, there is this school of thought out there that says, no, they're there to interpret the Constitution. The Constitution is not up for interpretation. It doesn't need to be interpreted. It just needs to be enforced. Its meaning is clear. If its meaning wasn't clear, if it just meant whatever you think it means, well, then it would be void for vagueness. The left wants us to believe that the Constitution is this living, breathing document that changes with the times. That's not the case, because if it was the case, the Constitution wouldn't be worth the paper it's written on. It would be completely meaningless. What good is a law that means whatever people want to say it means? If it changes with the times, then it has no meaning because the times are constantly in flux. The idea is to have a set of laws that never changes. Now, if you don't like something that's in the Constitution, there is a provision for amending it. I mean, if the Constitution just meant whatever you wanted it to mean and just changed with the times, then why would you even have to amend it? You just reinterpret it to allow any type of government program that you think is worthwhile. The reason you have to amend it is because that's the only way to change it. Because absent an amendment, the Constitution means what it says. In fact, my father used to always say that the Constitution doesn't need to be interpreted. It's not written in Chinese. It's written in English. And all the justices have to do is enforce it. What are interpreted, if anything, are the facts, not the law. It's the facts and how they apply to the particular case at hand. Is what the government trying to do authorized by the Constitution or not? That's it. It's got nothing to do with your upbringing or your personal opinions. It's what does the Constitution authorize and is a particular piece of legislation that you are reviewing, is that authorized by the Constitution? For example, let's say there's a case that gets up to the Supreme Court that has to do with the Americans with Disability Act, right? Let's say maybe there was a guy that owned a restaurant and he didn't comply with that act. Maybe he didn't have the right 
handicapped parking space or maybe the countertop was a little bit too high and so a person in a wheelchair couldn't reach it. Whatever it is, there's some violation and there's a lawsuit against this entrepreneur, this restaurateur, and somehow it makes its way all the way up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is not there to decide really whether or not this restaurant complied with the ADA. That's irrelevant. What the Supreme Court is looking at is whether or not the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, is actually authorized by the Constitution. Does the U.S. government have the constitutional authority to require this restaurateur to provide handicapped parking or whatever? That's what they're there to decide. They don't interpret the Constitution. They just take a look at that law and they see if that's authorized by the Constitution. And it's clearly not. I mean, there's nothing in the Constitution that reads that the government could require a entrepreneur to provide any particular type of service in any particular fashion to any of its customers. So clearly, any judge that was enforcing the Constitution would declare any legislation pursuant to the Americans with Disabilities Act unconstitutional. The only reason it hasn't been declared unconstitutional is because the Supreme Court completely ignores the Constitution and it no longer enforces it because what they do is they try to interpret and by interpret they mean ignore and they look at things like the Commerce Clause or the Necessary and Proper Clause and somehow say, oh, we're going to fit the Americans with Disabilities Act into that clause, which is ridiculous. The Commerce Clause is in Article 1, Section 8 of the U.S. Constitution. And here's what it reads. Congress has the power, quote, to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with the Indian tribes. What is commerce? It's trade. It's buying and selling. So Congress can regulate trade from one state to another, from one state with Indian tribes, and who were separate, and with foreign nations. It doesn't say anything in the Commerce Clause where the U.S. government can regulate individuals or businesses that engage in commerce. It's the commerce itself. And so if you're going to try to say that the American Disabilities Act is authorized based on the Commerce Clause, you are wrong. You are twisting the words of the Commerce Clause. You are ignoring that clause, which clearly applies to commerce itself and says nothing about powers to regulate the companies that engage in the commerce. The same thing is true with the Necessary and Proper Clause. That's also in Article 1, Section 8, but it reads that Congress shall make all laws for executing its other powers and those of the federal government as a whole that are enumerated in the Constitution. So if the Constitution says that the federal government can establish a post office, well, then it could pass the laws that are necessary to establish that post office. It doesn't mean that they can pass laws that are necessary to establish powers that are not specifically granted in the Constitution. And those powers are few, and they are clearly enumerated. The Constitution, when you read it, gives very few powers to the federal government. And the only laws that they could make are the laws necessary and proper to implementing those very few powers that Congress is clearly given pursuant to the Constitution. And how do we know this? Well, apart from reading the Constitution, you can read what the people who wrote the Constitution wrote. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. 
Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For example, James Madison, who is considered the father of the Constitution, right? So the father of the Constitution should know a little bit about the child that he fathered. And in fact, James Madison wrote extensively about the U.S. Constitution in the Federalist Papers. And if you don't know what they are, it's a collection of essays written by John Jay, Alexander Hamilton, and James Madison. And they were published in 1788. And these individuals were writing in order to urge New York to vote to ratify the proposed Constitution. And here is what James Madison wrote, quote, the powers delegated by the proposed Constitution to the federal government are few and defined. Those which are to remain in the state governments are numerous and indefinite. The former will be exercised principally on external objects, war, peace, negotiations, and foreign commerce, with which last the power of taxation will, for the most part, be connected. So in other words, here's James Madison saying the federal government has very limited powers. And in fact, mostly it's going to be concerned with foreign stuff, like wars, negotiating trade deals, stuff like that. And he writes that, and that's where taxes are going to be. The government is going to levy taxes, the federal government, to provide for the army, to provide for negotiating trade deals. Domestic affairs were going to be left to the states. And the states would levy taxes to cover the cost of domestic programs. And the federal government would levy taxes for international stuff. Of course, that is not what happens today. Most of federal taxes have to do with domestic programs, none of which is authorized by the U.S. Constitution. All of it is unconstitutional. When you're running a small business, it's those HR issues that can kill you. Wrongful termination lawsuits, discrimination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, and HR manager salaries ain't cheap. They average $70,000 a year. That's where Bambi comes in, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E. Bambi was created especially for small business owners. You get your own dedicated HR manager who will craft your HR policy and maintain your compliance and do it all for just $99 a month. And with Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to one of your biggest strengths. Your dedicated HR manager will be available by phone, email, or real-time chat for anything from onboarding to terminations. And they'll customize your 
policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day to day and do it all for just $99 a month. Best of all, it's month to month. There are no hidden fees and you can cancel any time. I sure wish Bambi was around when I was starting up my company. It would have made things a lot easier. So go to Bambi.com slash gold right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash gold. Spelled BAM to the B-E-E dot com slash gold. In fact, here's another great quote from James Madison. Quote, I cannot undertake to lay my finger on that article of the Constitution which granted a right to Congress of expending on objects of benevolence the money of their constituents. Now, what does that mean? That means the father of the Constitution says there is nothing in that Constitution that authorizes Congress to spend taxpayers' money on causes that they consider worthwhile, which would be education or healthcare, right? None of those concepts are in the Constitution. The word healthcare is not in the Constitution once. The word education is not in the Constitution once. The word housing is not in the Constitution once. So if those words are not there, how do you justify government housing programs? How do you justify government healthcare programs when there is no specific grant of authority anywhere in the Constitution for Congress to spend one nickel on those things? And here you have the guy who wrote the Constitution specifically telling you that there's nothing in the document he wrote that authorizes anything that the government is now doing. Now, what Biden wants in a Supreme Court nominee is somebody who's going to completely ignore what James Madison wrote. Here's another Madison quote. The operations of the federal government will be most extensive and important in times of war and danger. Those of the state governments in time of peace and security. Again, the idea that the federal government is only there for foreign affairs and defense and everything else is the province of the states. Clearly, that means that just about everything the federal government does would be struck down by a Supreme Court that actually enforced the Constitution instead of ignored it the way President Biden wants and the way nominee Jackson will in fact rule. Here's one other quote by Madison I've always liked that is very appropriate here. If men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. And what that means is we need governments because men are not angels, but we need constitutions because angels aren't governing men because the men and women that we elect to govern us, they're not angels either. And so their conduct needs to be restricted by the Constitution. And that's why the Constitution can't be a living, breathing document. It can't mean whatever some justice wants to pretend it means. It has to mean what it says because we have to have a check on government power. And we can't have the government bend that check at its will because otherwise it doesn't exist and the government could do whatever it wants. And in fact, you don't have to go back and look at what the framers of the Constitution wrote about what the Constitution meant. You can look to the Constitution itself because it tells you what it means. The 10th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution reads, the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. What that means 
is for the federal government to have a power, it must be specifically given to it by the Constitution. It also means that unless the states are specifically prohibited from doing something, then it has that power. So if the federal government isn't given the power to do something, it can't do it. And the state governments can do whatever they want unless it's prohibited by the Constitution. Now, of course, all the state governments are limited by their own constitutions. So it's not that they can do whatever they want. But according to the Constitution, they can do anything that is not prohibited by that Constitution. But the federal government can only do those few things that are specifically authorized to it by the Constitution. Of course, in her acceptance speech, Katonzi Brown-Jackson did claim that she honors the Constitution and the principles upon which this nation was founded. But of course, that's not true at all. She may not even understand those principles. In fact, during her short speech, she twice referred to the United States as being a democracy. Well, we're not a democracy. If she understood the Constitution, supposedly that she's there to defend, she would know that the United States is not a democracy. The word democracy does not appear once in the body of the Constitution. It's not in the Bill of Rights. It wasn't in the Declaration of Independence. There's nothing in America's founding documents that ever refer to America as a democracy. In fact, the only time the Founding Fathers talked about democracy was to warn about the risks and the evils inherent in democratic government and democracy. Avast has been a global leader in cybersecurity for more than 30 years and trusted by over 435 million users. Avast empowers you with digital safety and privacy no matter who you are, where you are, or how you connect. Now you can enjoy the opportunities that come with being connected, but do it on your terms. Avast's new all-in-one solution, Avast One, helps you take control of your safety and privacy online through a range of features. You can learn more about Avast One at avast.com. Features like award-winning antivirus that stops viruses and malware from harming your devices. Data breach monitoring, which enables you to find out if your online accounts have been compromised or whether your passwords have been changed. And you get firewall protection to keep personal information secure and prevent attacks that seek to access your computer and steal your data. I've been securing my own data for years by using Avast. In fact, Avast prevents over 1.5 billion attacks every month. And with Avast One, you can confidently take control of your online world without worrying about viruses, phishing attacks, ransomware, hacking attempts, and other cyber crimes. You can learn more about Avast One at Avast.com. If you look at the Constitution itself, which the Supreme Court is there to enforce, again, not interpret, I think it's interesting that supposedly all the laws that are meant to regulate conduct for individuals, they're never up to interpretation, right? We, the people, we have strict laws that are written that we have to abide by. Ignorance is no excuse of the law. The law is written, you've got to follow it. It's only the Constitution which applies to the government. Somehow that one's up to interpretation so they can do whatever we want. Because see, we can't just interpret the laws against robbery or extortion or murder. And they don't mean whatever we want to think they mean. They mean what they say. But somehow the laws that limit the power of government, well, they don't mean what they say. They can be interpreted, which again is a way that the government can ignore 
those laws. I mean, the Constitution is supposed to bind the government. Thomas Jefferson said, we bind the government in the chains of the Constitution. Well, what the government has done is they found a way to break free of those chains under the guise of interpreting a document that doesn't need any interpretation. It just needs to be enforced and followed. But here is what the Constitution actually declares when it comes to government. I'm reading now from Article 4, Section 4. The United States shall guarantee to every state in this union a Republican form of government. That's it. Republican government is what we have. So what Ms. Jackson should have been referring to was the American Republic, not the American democracy. Now, a lot of people might not even know the difference. Like, maybe I'm splitting hairs here. What's the difference between a democracy and a republic? There is a world of difference between those two forms of government. Democracy is basically majority rules. Whatever the majority wants to do, that's what we do. If people want to vote for it, if more people are for it than against it, well, then we do it, right? That's democracy. Well, the founding fathers hated democracy with a passion. Republican government is not about majority rule. In fact, Republican government is far more about protecting the rights of the minority from any oppression of the majority. You still have government by the people as opposed to a monarch or some authoritarian ruler. You have a body that represents the people, but it doesn't represent the will of the people. It's not about rubber stamping whatever the majority wants to do. Again, it's protecting the rights of the minority from the majority. Here, I'm going to read some quotes from the Founding Fathers regarding their thoughts on republic and democracy. So one of the most famous ones, Benjamin Franklin, and this had to do with when Franklin is walking out from ratifying the Constitution and he's bombarded by a crowd and somebody asks him, what type of government have you given us, Mr. Franklin? And his famous answer is a republic if you can keep it. Now, first, Franklin says, I have given you a republic, not a democracy. But then he has a bit of a warning if you can keep it. What does he mean by that? Well, I think what he meant was that if we can prevent the republic from degenerating into a democracy, because he knew if our nation ever became a democracy, well, it wouldn't remain a nation that long because of the way our founders viewed democracy. In fact, it was Ben Franklin that came up with the following definition of democracy. And I think to this day, it's probably the best definition I've ever heard of democracy. Democracy is two wolves and a lamb voting on what to have for dinner. Liberty is when a well-armed lamb contests the vote. In other words, if you got two foxes and a lamb voting on dinner, well, the lamb is outvoted. He's going to get eaten. The only way to prevent that is to contest the vote. And how is the lamb contesting the vote? With the Constitution. The lamb is armed with the Constitution to protect his individual rights from being violated by these two hungry wolves that want to eat him. Here's a quote from Alexander Hamilton regarding the Constitution. Quote, we are now forming a Republican form of government. We are a Republican government. Real liberty is never found in despotism or in the extremes of democracy. 
extremes of democracy. So Hamilton regarded democracy as an extreme form of government in which there is no liberty. You can't have liberty in a democracy, but you can in a republic, and that's the form of government that we're supposed to have because Republican government can secure liberty, but an extreme type of government like democracy cannot. Here's what John Adams had to say about democracy. Remember, a democracy never lasts long. It soon wants, exhausts, and murders itself. There's never been a democracy yet that did not commit suicide. Here's Benjamin Rush. A simple democracy is the devil's own government. The devil. Democracy is a creature of the devil. Thomas Jefferson. Everybody knows who Thomas Jefferson is. Here's what he had to say about democracy. Quote, a democracy is nothing more than mob rule, where 51% of the people can vote to take away the rights of the other 49. Mob rule. In fact, the founding fathers often referred to democracy as mobocracy. Here, another quote from Jefferson. The democracy will cease to exist when you take away from those who are willing to work and give to those who are not. Perfect, right? Welfare, right? When some people can vote to take money away from others, well, there goes your democracy. In fact, that reminds me of another great quote, not by a founding father, but it's still worth mentioning, and it dates back about 200 years. Quote, a democracy cannot exist as a permanent form of government. It can only exist until the majority discovers it can vote itself logress out of the public treasury. Well, that is exactly what we are doing. We are running these huge deficits because the public believes that it can have whatever it wants because the government can create it out of thin air. And let me add a few quotes again by James Madison. Again, the father of the Constitution already read some quotes with respect to the powers authorized in the Constitution to the federal government. But here's what James Madison had to say about democracy. Quote, the purpose of the Constitution is to restrict the majority's ability to harm the minority. So the purpose of the Constitution is to prevent democracy. You know, when you hear the Elizabeth Warrens out there about taxing the rich, taxing the billionaires, the billionaires are a minority that the Constitution was written to protect because obviously the majority of people are not billionaires and the Constitution is there, like it or not, to protect the billionaires from everybody else, to prevent everybody else from taking away property or rights of the billionaires because the billionaires are in a voting minority. Now, of course, the Democrats don't want that. They don't want to protect the rich. They want to loot the rich. They want to redistribute what the rich have and they want to dole it out to the people who vote for them. But the Constitution was specifically written to prevent that. So why in hell would Biden want to nominate someone to the Supreme Court who actually believed in the Constitution and would enforce it because it would be a complete roadblock to the Biden agenda? The Green New Deal is not constitutional. Universal health care is not constitutional. Government guaranteed jobs are not constitutional. Minimum wage laws, student loans. I mean, all these things that Biden wants to do. If the Constitution were properly enforced, he couldn't do any of it. Here's another quote from James Madison. Democracy is the most vile form of government. How's that? The most vile. 
I mean, because there are a lot of other forms of government, but according to James Madison, the father of our constitution, democracy is the most vile. I mean, worse than having a king, right? James Madison would rather live under a monarchy than a democracy. That tells you how much they hated democracy. And given the hatred that the framers had for democracy, why would they have established a country with a form of government that they detested? They wouldn't. And they detested it for a reason. It's not like they didn't have democracies back then. Democracy goes all the way back to ancient Greece. Yes, they understood democracy. They knew the dangers of democracy. And they tried to protect the nation they were forming from the evils that they understood result from democracy. In fact, here's what Madison wrote in Federalist Paper Number 10 about democracy. Pure democracies have ever been spectacles of turbulence and contention, have ever been found incompatible with personal security or the rights of property, and have in general been as short in their lives as they have been violent in their deaths. And a final quote from Madison, it is of great importance in a republic meaning the United States, not only to guard the society against the oppression of its rulers, but to guard one part of the society against the injustices of the other part, meaning the mob, meaning you have a bunch of people that are demanding free stuff from government, and it's the duty of the republic to protect the minority from being forced to provide that free stuff. Elizabeth Warren's wealth tax clearly comes to mind here as being something that the Constitution was specifically written to prevent. And of course, there were all sorts of other constitutional problems with a wealth tax, such as a unapportioned direct tax. But the very reason that framers created the requirement that direct taxes be apportioned is because they wanted to make it difficult. They assumed that they would never have direct taxes, but during wartime. It wasn't something that the government was supposed to live on under normal conditions because the federal government wasn't even supposed to do much during peacetime. It was only really important during times of war, and those were the times when it might need additional revenue. Of course, there were some democratic features of the American Republic, but I'm going to go over, because a lot of people might not know, just exactly how voting worked early in the American Republic. Because first of all, voting was never considered to be a right. And I know today a lot of people talk about the right to vote and why that's the most important right that we have. That's a bunch of nonsense. We don't have a right to vote. Go look at the Bill of Rights. Voting is not among them. There's nothing that says anybody has a right to vote. Voting was always regarded as a privilege. Because when you think about it, voting is a means to an ends. The ends is good government, not that everybody has a vote. Think about it this way. Let's say that you and 99 other castaways were stranded on an island somewhere and you needed to come up with a government and so you were going to decide on who was going to get to vote. One choice was that, hey, everybody votes. One man, one vote, democracy, majority rules. The other proposal was, hey, let's just have the 20 smartest people and let them vote. We're not going to have everybody vote. We're just going to pick the 20 smartest people and we're going to let them vote. Well, let's say you look around at everybody and you assess everybody or we take an IQ test or whatever, but it's determined that you don't make it into the top 20. Maybe you're number 25. So you don't make the cut. If you vote to have just the smartest people vote, you don't get a vote. But the average person you've decided is a complete idiot. 
And so if everybody gets to vote, including you, your vote's going to get canceled out by a bunch of idiots and you're going to end up with bad government. Personally, I would rather select the system where I can't vote, but I'm more likely to have better government than where I can vote and I have lousy government, right? Because the key is the result, not how you get there. And if you get a better result by limiting the number of people who can vote, well, that's what you do. And that's exactly what was done for a long time in this country. First of all, if you go to the Constitution and you look at where is there even voting by the people, the president wasn't elected by the people, neither was the vice president. They were elected by the Electoral College. And the Electoral College was not envisioned to be a rubber stamp of the popular vote. The electors were supposed to exercise their judgment in deciding who to elect. And their judgment was supposed to be better than the judgment of the people that they represented. Then you have the senators. The senators were all appointed by state legislatures. Now, the state legislators, they were elected, but now those elected representatives decided who they were going to send to the United States Senate. And why are the terms staggered? Why do one third of the terms come up every two years? Well, the idea that the framers had was, hey, if there was some kind of popular fad that took hold and it swayed the opinions of these state legislatures that at most you could capture one third of the U.S. Senate in any election cycle. And so it would be hard to make a big impact when you still have two thirds that were representing the old guard, as opposed to whatever this new idea that happened to capture one third of that body. In contrast, the representatives They were all up for election every two years. And the reason for that is the House of Representatives was supposed to be the one body in Congress that was more tied to the public. But again, the representatives were not there to take a poll and do whatever the public wanted. The public was electing them to exercise their judgment because their judgment was supposed to be better than the people they represented and decide what's right for their constituents, even if it's not what their constituents actually want. And of course, the idea was that there would be a lot of turnover because they were running for office every two years. I mean, people thought that if you had to run for office that often, you couldn't constantly win. Somebody else would win, but they had no idea of the type of political machine that would be created so that these guys are in for life. But then you have to go and take a look at the voting because there's nothing in the Constitution, again, about voting. The only criteria that are established in the Constitution are for the candidates. And generally there, it has to do with age, how old you have to be. You have to be 25 to be in the House of Representatives. You have to be 30 to be a United States Senator. And you have to be 35 to be president. Now, of course, I would like to change that in the Constitution. I think we need to make those numbers a lot older than they are because think about it. When you were 25 around the time of the Constitution, you were married, you had a few kids, you've probably been working for at least 10 years, right, since you were 15, if not younger. But you take somebody at 25 years old today, they may be one year out of school, just graduate, never even had a job, let alone run a business. Most 25-year-olds are still single, They're not family men. They don't have any kids. They don't really have the life experience that the framers envisioned at the time they wrote the Constitution. So personally, I think we should add at least 10 years to every category. So you should have to be 35 to be in the House, 40 to be in the Senate, and maybe 45 to be president. Something like that would make a lot more sense 
given the way life in America has changed since the time the Constitution was ratified. But there's nothing in the Constitution that has any criteria about who gets to vote. That is left to the states. That's one of the things that was up to the states. Remember, the federal government has few and defined powers. The states can do whatever they want as long as the Constitution doesn't prevent them from doing it. And the Constitution, as originally written and in the first Bill of Rights, there was nothing in the Constitution that restricted the criteria for voting. Now, that changed over time by constitutional amendment. But before the Constitution was amended, this is what the states did in order to restrict voting to have a better outcome. One thing they did was you had to be male. Women could not vote. Now, why was that? Well, because given the roles that women played in society at the time, they stayed at home, they took care of the house. So they weren't as knowledgeable on the type of issues that might make for an informed voter. So the idea was, hey, let's just eliminate the women and we'll just have the men voting. Now, maybe there were some women who were informed and would have been good voters, but you're just trying to get a good outcome. Remember, voting is a privilege. Outcome is what we want. And if the vast majority of women would not be informed voters, it's just better to eliminate them entirely and you'll have a better chance of getting a better outcome. Now, of course, in today's day and age, such a distinction would make no sense. I mean, women are just as likely as men to be out in the workforce, to be informed voters. So a sex-based qualification would make no sense. So I don't want anybody to come out and say, hey, Peter doesn't think women should vote. Had I been around in 1789, I might have agreed with that general characterization, but I clearly don't agree with it now. There is no benefit to be had from such a restriction because there's no cogent argument that you could make that you would exclude women from voting. Although personally, I think women are more likely to vote for liberals, to vote for Democrats. I mean, unfortunately, that is the reality. So we probably would have better outcomes if they didn't vote, uh, but I'm not in favor of excluding them for that reason. Anyway, the next one was age. You had to be at least 21 years old to vote. Now, that's been lowered to 18, but it's not actually 18. The voting age can be any age. The state can let a 10-year-old vote if it wants. It just can't restrict voting once you hit 18. So most states, all states, I think, had 21 as the voting age. And now, because of the constitutional amendment, they can't make a voting age that's any lower than 18. So they could do 17 if they wanted or 16 or 15. They just can't do 19. They can't do 20. They have to let people who are 18 vote. Now, I I think that's a mistake. In fact, again, I think the voting age should be increased. It should be higher than 21, not lower. Because again, when somebody was 21 a couple of hundred years ago, 200, 250 years ago, that 21-year-old was a lot more knowledgeable, had a lot more real-world experience than a 21-year-old today. A 21-year-old today typically has never had a job and is still in school, whereas a 21-year-old back then had been out of school, had been working, and was probably married and probably already had children. So it's a very different person. So I would, I would say maybe 31 would be the voting age or something like that, because A 31-year-old today may have more in common with a 21-year-old back then when it comes to life and work experience because the experience of being a student really does not qualify you to vote because you've never really worked, you've never run a business, you've never paid any taxes, 
you don't understand anything about government and you have no business voting. In fact, the only reason they lowered the voting age from 21 to 18 was because of the Vietnam War, because we were drafting people at 18. And they said, well, if you're old enough to fight, you're old enough to vote, which makes as much sense as saying if you're too old to fight, you're too old to vote. Voting and fighting have nothing in common, and they require two very different skill sets. Fighting is just about being young and strong and quick. And there, an 18-year-old has an advantage. Now, I'm not even in favor of the draft. So, I mean, I'm not saying two wrongs make a right. The point is that they're very different. And so we can't say, hey, these guys can fight, therefore we need to let them vote. No, unless you're going to say, hey, here's these old people, they're not fighting, so let's take away their right to vote. Voting and fighting have nothing to do with one another, and they never should have been tied to one another. But of course, once they lowered the voting age down to 18, that's where all these student loans came from. That's why all the students are now drowning in debt, because once you had 18-year-olds voting, how did the politicians buy their votes? By promising them cheaper college. Well, it got a lot more expensive as a result of government. Again, whatever the government promises, they deliver the opposite. So the students got in bed with the government and they got, you know what? Another common criteria for voting was a literacy test. You want to vote? Pass a literacy test. Prove that you could read. Now, nobody would suggest such a test. No, we, you're illiterate. You can't read anything. Just go vote. Because all they care about now is that you vote. In fact, the dumber, the better. The dumber, the less informed a voter is, the more likely he is to vote for a socialist. So the government wants all the uninformed, illiterate people to vote. In fact, now you have people trying to say, we got to let the people in prison vote because most states don't let you vote. I mean, you're in prison, you break the law. I mean, why are we going to give you the privilege to vote? Again, it's not a right, it's a privilege. So let's not extend the privilege to people who are in prison because they violated somebody else's rights. But of course, government wants everybody voting. And then another thing that was very common back in the day was a poll tax. You want to vote? Pay a tax, right? If you don't care enough about voting, if you're not willing to pay a tax, well, then don't vote. Now, I know there are people going to say, well, that's terrible because then only the rich people will pay. Well, First of all, no poll taxes were ever that high, right? It wasn't like you had to be rich to afford to pay the poll tax, but it was a tax. And the whole idea was, if you're not willing to pay this tax, well, then voting is obviously not important to you. If you don't think it's worth a small fee, then don't do it. And that whole concept would be so repugnant today to everybody. I mean, they want to make it so easy for people to vote. They want to give you the day off of work. They want to do all sorts of things so you don't have to sacrifice anything in order to vote. Well, what meaning does the vote have if you don't even make a small sacrifice in order to cast one? Now, people are going to say, well, if you just let wealthier people vote, they're going to exploit the poor people. No, they're not. How? How are they going to do that? If you have a constitution that protects the minority, that protects people, then it doesn't matter who's voting because there is no special privilege. Nobody can get something from government at the expense of somebody else. So the only reason to vote is for good government. See, now people are voting because they want something from government because of all the power that the government has usurped because our Supreme Court nominees ignore the Constitution and pretend to interpret it. Because of that, the government has all this power and people are vying for that power. They want the government to use the power for them 
and not against them. In fact, in many cases, they want the government to use that power against other people who maybe compete with them or whose interests are contrary to their own. So that's where all the lobbying comes in. There would be no lobbying. If the Constitution were rightfully enforced, there'd be no lobbyists because there'd be no point because they'd have no effect. All this campaign finance, all these rules and regulations about limiting contributions would be irrelevant if the Constitution were properly enforced because nobody would make contributions if they could expect nothing in return. Because based on the Constitution as written, there are no special benefits for anyone. There's just good government for everyone. And good government means limited government. It means small government. The government that governs best governs least. (laughs) 